Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. We're going to be reading chapter 1 verse 22 through chapter 2 verse 3 this morning. Last several years, I've had the privilege of participating in quite a few wedding ceremonies. And uh, my favorite point of the wedding ceremony is always as the doors open and the bride steps through and there's the groom. He's standing. I'm always standing next to the groom. And I see the bride come in and then I turn and I look at the groom. I love looking at the groom's face, you know, because he's just, just overwhelming to him. He's so excited and, you know, he's nervous, anxious, tense, but also excited. And a huge smile comes on his face and bride comes down and, you know, all he can do is just stare at her. And he's just staring at her through the whole ceremony. And, and I usually keep my message pretty short because they don't hear anything that I have to say. You know, they're just staring at one another in this big, it's almost like a painful grin. They're just so happy and they're smiling through the whole thing. And I finish and whew, they're relieved. And then they smile the rest of the day. You know, just again, that just, uh, just painful smile because they're in love. They're in love and they're waiting and waiting for this day. They're in love. But I know something that they don't know on that day. And what I know is that their love is real, but it's, it's not yet mature. And I don't say that to put down the love that they experience on that day, because it's, it's a really important day, and it's a very powerful love. But it's not a love that's been tested yet. And it will be tested. The world is going to attack their marriage. And try to tear their marriage apart. And they're going to be tempted from within, from the flesh, to not grow in love toward one another, but to begin to attack one another. And unless they come together in unity and love, that pressure from the outside and decay from the inside will destroy their marriage. And it won't be all that God designed it to be, all that they hoped it to be, all that it could be as a testimony to the world. The body of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, is under exactly the same attack. The world and Satan is attacking the bride of Christ from without, persecuting. And temptations come in from within, tempting us to pick at each other and fight with one another. And if we don't come together in love, genuine supernatural love, those pressures from outside and the decay from inside will destroy the bride of Christ and we won't shine, we won't be beautiful to the world. Peter is writing to a church that is under attack from the world. And they are being tempted to go after one another in the midst of all that pressure. And so he exhorts them, love one another. Come together with one another. So that you can withstand the attacks of the world and so that you can shine brightly and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want you to read with me beginning chapter 1 and verse 22. Peter writes, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, And all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisies and envies and all slanders, 
Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. In this section we began last week, Peter issues six commands, six imperatives that describe the good life, the best life that God has to offer. If you want to enter into a life that's rich and full and satisfying, you need to pursue these things. He begins with an imperative that addresses not behavior, you'll recall, but perspective, attitude. It's in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, live today for that day. Don't be consumed by your present circumstances, but live in light of that day when Jesus Christ in all of his glory is revealed and you get to share in his glory. It'll change your whole attitude toward life. It's the first command. Second command is just a general command. He says, be holy. Be holy because your heavenly father is holy. Be holy like your heavenly father is holy. Be set apart. Be distinct. And now in this third command, he's going to say specifically, here's how. Love one another. Because God is love. Love is from God. And when you love one another, you are like God. This theme of love is is enormously significant throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Let me give you one illustration, a a verse that you probably know very well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's called the love chapter. At the end, Paul writes this. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What's so great about love? Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but really love, he says, is preeminent. Why is that? Well, now we see in a mirror dimly. We've got a glimpse of of who Jesus Christ is, and we've got a glimpse of what the future holds, but we haven't seen him yet. Someday, though, we're going to see him face to face. We're going to see him eye to eye. And we will no longer walk by faith. We'll walk by sight. So faith will be swept aside. Someday, we will receive that eternal, imperishable inheritance that he has set aside for us. And so we will no longer hope for it and long for it. It will be actualized. We will possess it and hope will be set aside. But even after faith and hope are set aside and we are walking by sight and in the actualization, the realization of all that we've longed for, we'll still be called upon to love. Love will endure forever. And so Paul says the greatest of these is love. And Peter issues his first specific directive command. He says, love one another. Love one another. What does it mean to love? Well, obviously the best place that we can go to answer that question is the internet. (laughs) It's where we go to answer all of our questions, right? I remember when I was a kid and I had to do research paper, we actually, we would go to the library. We check out books. Encyclopedia Britannica, and we, we research and look in books. But now, my son has a project to do. We just get on the internet because it's all true. And you can get any information that you want. It's just right there. So we go to the internet. So this week, I thought, where else should I go? I'll go to the internet, and I'll look up, what is love? And if you search on love, and you look for illustrations or ideas or references to love, 99% of them refer to the love between a man and a woman. 
And 99% of the references on the internet, that body of all information, talks about love between a man and a woman. But you know, the Bible presents a very different picture. If you search the word love in just the New Testament, New American Standard Bible, it shows up 287 times. 287 times. Only five times is it talking about the love between a man and a woman. That's interesting, isn't it? For those of you who care, that's 1.7%. In other words, 98.3% of the time, it's talking about the love God has for us and the love that we have for God and the love that we have for one another in the body of Christ and the love that we should have for those who don't know his son, Jesus Christ. And then 1.7% of the time, it talks about the love between a man and a woman. In other words, when the world talks about love, it's emphasizing the wrong thing. Because the starting point is the fact that we love because God first loved us. God loved us, therefore we love. We love brothers and sisters in Christ. Husbands love wives. We love children. We love the lost. But the primary emphasis is on the fact that God loves us. What does it mean then to love? Read with me again chapter 1 verse 22. Peter says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Peter uses two words for love in this single verse. The first word that he uses is Philadelphia, which means literally brotherly love. It's the love, literally, of siblings. The love that brothers and sisters have for one another. Sometimes that can include affection, but... Not always, right? The primary emphasis on this word is the the obligation, the necessity. We've been thrown together because we were born into the same family. We should have care and concern for one another and do what's best for one another. Philadelphia. The second word that he uses is agape. You're probably fairly familiar with this. If you've listened to uh, any sermons from the New Testament for any length of time, it's referred to a lot. However, it's interesting. If you look at Greek literature... Greek writers hardly ever use the word agape. It's a very rare word for them. They spend a lot of time talking about eros, okay, erotic love, sexual love. They spent quite a bit of time talking about affection, but not much time talking about agape. When they did, they saw agape as being this, this higher love. And so the New Testament writers grabbed that word since it was so rare, and they said, let us explain now what true love is really all about. Agape love is unconditional. Agape love is sacrificial. Agape love is choosing to do what's best for the other person, even if the other person doesn't deserve it, even if the other person doesn't reciprocate. That is agape love. It's always choosing to do what's best for the other person. It doesn't mean always rescuing the other person from consequences, but it means always doing what's best for the other person. Because of choice. Emotion may or may not come with it. But still you choose to love. In the New Testament, this is the word that's used to refer to the love that occurs between the Father and the Son. And the Son and the Spirit. And the Spirit and the Father. This is the word that's used to describe the love between the most perfect relationship that has ever existed and will ever exist. 
There is a unity created within the Trinity because of love. And our relationships in the body of Christ are supposed to reflect that kind of love. And so Peter says, love one another and love one another fervently from the heart. He gives a few characteristics of this love. Let's read it again. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. That word sincere is unhypocritical. He goes on, he says, love one another out of the heart or from the heart. Let it be genuine, sincere, unhypocritical. In other words, not play acting, not pretending. That word for hypocrite, remember, was the the word for the actor would hold up the mask and he would play a part. But his real identity was revealed when the mask was taken away. And he says, don't put on the mask of love. Don't play the part. Let it be genuine, real, sincere. So I asked myself this week, well, what would hypocritical love look like? And then I remembered what it was like growing up. Hypocritical love was the love that we actually showed our siblings when we were growing up, right? It was fake Philadelphia, right? Mom and dad are somewhere nearby, and so we say, You know, I'd say to my sister, you know, I really love you and I'm talking to you this way right now because mom and dad are watching, but in a minute they're going to leave and then pow, I'm going to take off the mask. Okay, that's hypocritical love, right? What's real love, genuine love, from the heart love? Now let me give you a verse that illustrates it. Romans chapter 12, Apostle Paul wrote, let love, agape, be genuine or unhypocritical, without a mask. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection because you've been thrown together. Philadelphia. Outdo one another in showing honor. Unhypocritical love is love that is not pretend. It is love that is intentional. It's love that chooses to go after a brother or sister and to bless them. Even when they don't deserve it. Even when they don't reciprocate. It's choosing always to do what's best for the other person. It's not always rescuing that person from consequences. But it's choosing to do what's best for the other person. And actually meaning it. He goes on, he says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for an unhypocritical love for the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. This word for fervent means uh, energetically, passionately, but also it means uh, unceasingly, unremittingly. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Peter uses the same word. He says, above all, remember, love is preeminent. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So agape love is uh, not pretend. It's intentional. It is fervent. It is unremitting. It's overwhelming. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is calling us to love one another this way. And this should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because maybe right now, stirring through your mind are people that you really don't want to even love. And it's those exact people that God is saying, love them like this. Men and women, this is absolutely supernatural. To have as the the spontaneous outflow of our heart that we choose to actually love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, bless those who do wrong to us. That's supernatural. How does it occur? 
want you to look again at the first part of verse 22. Peter says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. You obeyed the truth, Peter says. He referred to this earlier, chapter 1, verse 2. You obeyed the truth of the gospel. You believed. You believed that Jesus Christ was the one who could sprinkle you with his blood. And when you did so, he removed the debt of your sin. He put you into a permanent relationship with God so that you would have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And part of that inheritance is the Spirit of God permanently indwelling you. Because you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can love like this. But you have to learn to love like this. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, okay, been set apart and been made holy, therefore love one another fervently from the heart. Okay, this is the, the gospel message. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of your sins, and when he did that, the debt was removed. You were reconciled to God, you were placed into permanent relationship with God, and he gave you his spirit, not just to rescue you from hell, but so that God could gather a family for himself that would love one another in such a way that people would look in and they'd say, my, how they love one another. I want to be a part of that. I don't experience that anywhere else. I need that kind of love. So God didn't just rescue us so that we would get out of hell. God rescued us to build a family for himself. And what blesses a father and mother more than anything in this world? When their children love one another. Many days I walk out of the house and I think and I pray, oh God, just let my children love one another and bless my wife. And not fight and pick and quarrel, but love. Love one another. Look with me in verse 23. He says, fervently love one another from the heart. Why? Because you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Love one another because you have been born again, because you have been regenerated. You were born into this world spiritually dead. That is, your spirit was disconnected from the spirit of God. You were trying to draw life from anything other than God. That's spiritual death. And it's unnatural for human beings. We were designed to be spiritually united with God. And when we are born again, our spirit is enlivened because it is reunited with the spirit of God. We have been regenerated. I want you to follow his argument here. He says, you have been regenerated by the word of God which is living, powerful, enduring, never-ending. And so your regeneration never ends. You can never be unborn again. You will always be born again. And follow his argument. Because you have been born again by this enduring seed, it changed your relationships. You were born a first time into a family. And then you had duties and obligations to this family. Now you are born again into a new family, the family of God. And these relationships are enduring. That's his point. You belong to one another. The grass withers, the flower fades. Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40. He says, look around you. Let me give you an analogy. Every one of you, you see this. It happens all the time. The leaves fall off the trees. They turn brown. Grass turns brown. The flowers die. They fade. 
Okay, you understand that. It's easy to see. But do you realize the same is true with everything else that you value in this world? The, the grass withers and the flower fades. Uh, even people, their bodies, they wither and fade. People are going to wither and fade. But the person, himself or herself, lasts forever. And because you've been regenerated by this imperishable seed, the seed that does not decay, you have been placed into these relationships which are imperishable. We are stuck with one another forever. And now abide faith, hope, and love. Someday we will walk by sight and we will no longer have to hope, but we will always be called upon to love. And so Peter says, start learning how to love right now because you're stuck with one another forever. And we spend so much of our time trying to avoid those certain relationships which are so difficult rather than seeing God is training me to love and not love on a mere human level, but to love those I don't want to love, to love those who don't deserve love, at least in my mind, to love those who never reciprocate, who never acknowledge or give thanks because that's the way God loves us, right? We don't deserve it. We usually don't reciprocate. We often throw it back in his face. And yet God pursues and pursues. And he always does what's best for us. Does he always rescue us from the consequences of our choices? No, but he always does what's best for us. And God is calling us, men and women, to love one another in exactly the same way. That should be a bit overwhelming for us. Because we cannot do that in our own strength. How does it happen? How does it happen? I want you to read with me chapter 2 and verse 1. Peter says, therefore. Okay, and stop right there. Therefore. We're good students of the Bible. We see a therefore and we say to ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? Right on. Okay, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore is connecting these two ideas. If we're going to actually be able to love one another fervently from the heart, genuinely want to do it and do it agape style, unconditionally, unrelentingly, then the following things must occur. Therefore, it's tying the two ideas together, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What he's saying is the word of God has the power to train you to love like this. The problem is you don't hunger for it because you've got all these other things in your life that are suppressing your appetite for the transforming word of God. And you need to put them aside. I want to give you a little illustration. I need a, I need a volunteer. And John, you look like a great volunteer because of where you're sitting. So come on up. Okay. Here, I'm going to give you this mic. So you can just uh, tilt it right there so they can hear what you're saying. Come here. Okay, here's my illustration for you. Okay. I want you to tell me, um, what do you see in that cup? Nasty. <laughs> That's it's milk actually. What's it look like? Um, it's green and it has little dots of darker green in it. Yeah, I grew, I grew that just for you. Yeah, it's Now, lovely. my question for you, John, is because, you know, we've known each other a while and we're friends. Would you, would you drink this for me like, in front of these people? Just, you know, for the sake of illustration, would you, do you love me that much? I don't love you that much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
<laughs> Fair enough. All right. Okay. I'm going to, I'll make you, here's the deal. This clean, empty, right? All right. I'll clean scrubbed out. It's been washed everything. How about if I do this? Okay. I'm going to pour it into here. Okay. And then I'm going to, I'm going to pour you some, some fresh milk back in this cup. Okay. How about now? How, would you drink it now? No. You still wouldn't drink it. Why not? Uh, you didn't clean that up. <laughs> I didn't, did I? Okay, okay. Thank you, John. That was the point of my illustration. Here's the deal. I didn't scrub it clean. It was still nasty. And John loves me, sort of. <laughs> but he, bit, he didn't want to drink it. Because it wasn't pure. The cup hadn't been cleaned out. This word here that Peter uses, he says, putting aside... It was used for for cleaning dirt off of something or taking off dirty clothes. Paul really liked this word. He would talk frequently about uh, taking off the dirty clothes of the old life and putting on the clothing of the Spirit. If you're going to want to and long to drink the pure milk of the Word, you need to clean out the cup. So he says, therefore, laying aside, okay, taking it off, cleaning it out, scrubbing it out. And he makes a list here of things that have to be removed. Notice the list that he gives here. He says, Therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisies and envy and all slanders. Lay aside all that spoils love. And he gives us five things. It's not an exhaustive list, but five things that he puts on here. Uh, Malice, which is just a general word for a desire to have others experience harm. And rejoicing when they do experience harm. Deceit. That comes from a word that that had to do with catching something by the bait. Tricking, deceiving, and then taking. Uh, Hypocrisies. It's in the plural. It's not just hypocrisy, but uh, being being fake and phony in order to win something for ourselves. Envies. Wanting something that you don't have but someone else has. Slanders. uh, Disparaging someone else. Speaking down about someone else. He says, all of these things, notice, are relational sins. These are all relational sins. There are other sins that we can commit, other lusts of the flesh and other lusts of the eyes and boastful pride of life. But all five of these are relational sins because these are the things that destroy the family of God. And he says, wipe the cup clean. Why are these things in our lives? Well, in, in the simplest terms, these things arise in our lives because we don't believe what Peter has already told us in chapter 1. If we believed that we were rich in Christ, if we believed that we had an inheritance which is imperishable, okay, that doesn't rot, it, it doesn't fade. It doesn't decay. It cannot be taken away. It is guarded. There's a garrison around it, which is the power of God. If we really believe that all of these riches were ours in Jesus Christ, then we wouldn't have any need to take from somebody else. I wouldn't be envious of anything else that you have. Matter of fact, if I saw you hurting, I would long for you to be rich with me. Because if you were rich with me, it would not diminish my riches at all. Because I'm complete. And I'm satisfied. But when I don't believe what God tells me about what I possess in Jesus Christ, then I'm going to have to go after what other people have. Remember, the very nature of temptation and sin is that it is deceit. It is a lie. 
And so I see something that you have and I'm tricked. I believe a lie. I think you have something that I need. My life would be rich and full. It'd be more satisfying if I had, had that. And, and so I want it. I long for it. I might even try to reach out and steal it and take it. Because I've been deceived, I go to the banquet table of sin and I eat. And the tricky thing about sin is you eat and you know what? You do feel a little bit satisfied for a little while. But then you're hungry again and since you're still under deceit, you say, I gotta have more of that. And you take more. And you develop an addiction to sin. It can be envy, it can be slander, it can be hypocrisy, it can be lust, it can be alcohol, it can be drugs, it can be anything. And what happens is this cycle of sin's addiction and all sin becomes addiction. I've got to have more. I've got to have more because I'm still being deceived. And since I'm eating and eating and eating at sin's banquet table, I'm full, at least temporarily, and I don't hunger for the word of God. So I'm filled with things that cause me to be malnourished and I shrink as a person. You ever known someone who is filled with bitterness and filled with anger and filled with unforgiveness? They shrink. The best analogy that I could think of this week for this is rice cakes, right? Why does anyone ever eat a rice cake, right? You eat it, it doesn't taste good initially, and then you're hungry in like 30 seconds or more. Why does anyone eat a rice cake? Really, actually, the question is, why does anyone ever eat a second rice cake? That's sin, right? Okay, that's deceit. So clean out the cupboard, Peter's saying. Clean it out, get rid of all the rice cakes, Okay, all those things that you're eating and eating and eating, they can never satisfy you, they can't nourish you, they can't make you stronger. Set them all aside. And instead, long for the pure milk of the word of God. Read with me again. Verse 1. Therefore, if you want to love like God loves, lay aside... All that suppresses love, all that diminishes love, lay aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Instead, just like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into salvation since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Long for all that that stirs up and stimulates love. Long for all that kindles love within you. Long for it. How does a new babe long for milk? Well, if you've ever had children, you know. It's instinctive. Okay? They long for milk. And they want more milk all the time. And when they don't get milk, they're going to do everything that they possibly can to get it. They're going to cry and scream and fuss until they're fed. And they want more, and they want more, and they want more. They go to sleep at night, and what do they do? They dream about milk. It's amazing. It's all through their mind. Peter says, just like newborn babes. He's not saying you are babes, or you are immature. He's saying, but as babies long for milk, long for the, the, the pure milk, which is the opposite of deceit, the word he used earlier. It doesn't leave you empty. It nourishes you and grows you up. Long for uh, the pure milk, and my translation says, of the word. Literally, it is long for the pure, logical milk. It's the Greek word logikos. 
It means uh, rational or appropriate. This is the right milk for you, believers. That's what he's saying. Let me illustrate this word. It's It's a very interesting, unique word. He says, therefore I urge you, this is Paul in Romans chapter 12, brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or logical, appropriate, rational service of worship. Because of all that God has done for you, what is the the only appropriate response? Give him everything. Okay, that's what he's saying. It's appropriate. It's logical. Peter uses this word and he says, if you want to grow up into the love of God and love like God, then you have to long for the pure, unadulterated, nourishing milk. The only milk that's appropriate for you. It is the word of God. And then he goes on, he says, since indeed you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The thing about the milk of the word of God is, once you taste it with a sincere heart and you begin to see it changing your affections, you want more. And you taste it and you want more. And you taste it and you want more. Try it. There have been times when I've been struggling with circumstances in my life. Sometimes it's temptation. Sometimes it's just discouragement. And something within me will say, just pick it up and read. I'll just start to read. And I'll just read and I'll read and I'll read. And I see just progressively, and sometimes it takes five minutes, sometimes it takes ten minutes, sometimes it just takes an hour. But all of a sudden, it's supernatural. But I sense God transforming and relieving my mind of all of its burdens. And I long for more as I experience that. And Peter says... Just like newborn babes, instinctively, you need this. This is the right milk. This is the milk that will transform you into someone who can love like God loves, which is supernatural. To love those that don't necessarily deserve your love, who don't ever give it back, who don't say thank you. You can choose to do what's best for them and actually do it sincerely from the heart. Great illustration that I heard years ago fable from the ancient Near East. It was about three travelers who were walking across the desert. And as they made camp one night, they started their fire and a stranger walked into their camp, just appeared out of nowhere. And he sat down, he began speaking with them and he said, tomorrow when you get up, you will begin to walk and you will cross a dry riverbed. I want you to stop in that riverbed and reach down and collect rocks and put them into your pack. Then the next morning, look into your packs at the rocks that you have collected and you will discover that you are both joyful and sorrowful. And then he disappeared as quickly as he came. So he went to sleep that evening, got up and sure enough, as they were walking that day, they crossed a dry riverbed and they stopped and they picked up a few rocks and put them in their packs. Curious about what this stranger might have meant. Made camp that evening. Next morning, they woke up and they opened up their packs and they looked in and the rocks had all become jewels. And they discovered what he said was true. They were both joyful that they now possess these jewels and they were sorrowful that they hadn't collected more. So it is with 
the word of God, which is living and active, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to transform us when we come with a genuine and sincere heart. We won't stand before God someday and say, ah, I just spent too much time in the word. I should have been pursuing so many other fun things. Too much time studying and meditating too much time sharing with other believers the insights that I'm gleaning. Too much time allowing God's word to bathe in my mind. Jesus, that just was too much in the word. We're not going to say that. We will be both joyful and sorrowful. Every single one of us. Joyful at the time that we spent that prepared us to see Jesus. Sorrowful that we did not spend more. But reminded this morning that our calling as a church is to love one another and to love one another the way that Jesus loves us so that the world will look in and say, my, how they love one another. So as we close, two things I want you to think about and two applications. First, what is suppressing your appetite for the word of God and your desire to love others? Second, are you drinking daily from God's pure life-giving word? And maybe not... Daily, maybe it may need to be hourly, moment by moment. It may need to be constantly bathing your mind. And what are the things? Maybe you need to pull out this list that Peter gave, and it's not, like I said, exhaustive, but think through, are, are, there, are there issues in my life that are suppressing my love, my desire to pursue God, and my desire to love others? Are there changes that I need to make in my daily routines so that I allow God's word to bathe my mind and transform my thinking to train me to love? Okay, let's take a few moments and just allow God's spirit to search our hearts and then let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would stir up within us a longing for your word. And I pray, Father, that we would experience the supernatural transformation that your truth can bring into our hearts and our minds training us to love one another as you have loved us. I pray, Father, that you would make this body of believers supernatural. I pray that others would look at the way that we we love and we forgive and we bless. And they would want to experience that. They'd be drawn to your son, Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week loving one another.